All right, I'm so excited that you guys are here today. Look at your neighbor and say, my team won, okay? Some of you go, my team didn't win last night, all right? That's okay, that's okay. There is grace for your team, as we talked about last week. You no longer live under the law, you live under grace. So listen, we're in week two of uh, this series called Breaking Bad, and uh, last week we kind of introduced the topic and we're really kind of journeying through three different chapters in the book of Romans book of Romans is all about the righteousness of God and how we relate to God. And, and it's really about um, one of the greatest books of Christian doctrine. Like when you read the book of Romans, there's probably more doctrine in one book of the Bible than there is that one spot. And so we're diving into these three chapters because we feel like there's some stuff that we need to understand if we're going to break the bad in our lives. So if you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 7. I want to tell you a quick story as you're turning over there. Uh, when I gave my life to Christ, I shared some of this last week. Uh, radical things happened in me. Like I really, really did do a, like a 180 in my life. Like I was going one direction, really began to go another direction. And then I shared this last week. The only problem is I realized that there was something following me. I had a stalker and the stalker in my life was my old nature that even though I knew Christ, that Christ lived in me, that the power of God, the penalty of my sin had been paid and the power of God was real. There seemed to be this stalker, and my old nature continued to chase after me. And it seemed like the more that it chased after me, uh, the struggle became more and more difficult. Now, here's where that problem really ran into for me, okay? I actually encountered people at an early time in my Christian faith who acted as if they had no struggle in their Christian faith, okay? Have you ever met people like that? They're like, hey, man, how you doing? Man, I'm just living in such victory. I don't ever struggle with sin. I'm never, I mean, I've met Christians before. I'm literally looking at them going, listen, do you ever struggle? Like you talk as if you've got this whole thing down. I mean, Jesus might as well even take you just home right now, okay? Like I'm praying lightning hits you. Uh, the problem is when I gave my life to Christ, the struggle really began. Now, the power of sin was broken and the penalty of sin was paid for, but the real struggle began. And so today I want to talk to you about the idea that the struggle is real. The struggle is real. Last week we, we made the statement that a lot of us are betweeners. We're kind of like we're out of Egypt, but we're not in Canaan yet. You know, we're saved. We're not really satisfied with our Christian life. And, and we're kind of stuck between Good Friday and the resurrection, I and mean, we believe in the cross, we believe in the power of the cross, but we are not living in the power of the resurrection. And so we're kind of stuck spiritually. And last week we talked about grace. We said basically that we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. So we know that we're saved by grace, right, through faith. So what we do is we're saved by grace, so we go to one or two extremes. We say we're saved by grace so I can live as I please. I now have a license, to sin. Paul said, hey, why would you do that? That makes no sense. The second part is we're saved by grace. And so we think now that we're saved by grace, we have to live according to the law. And that's legalism. And that's really what we're going to talk about today. But before we do, I want to back up and kind of recap you on last week. Number one, we talked about Jesus died to free us from the power of sin. Jesus died to free you and I from the power of sin, not only pay the penalty of our sin that we couldn't pay, but when he died on the cross and through the resurrection, we now have power over sin. Some of you go, I don't feel that way. We're going to talk about that today. Number two, I no longer have to be a slave to sin. I mean, just hearing that, realizing that I have the capacity to not be a slave to sin brings me hope. It brings me hope because I realize even though the struggle is real, 
It doesn't mean that I have to live in the cycle of failure even through my struggle. That I don't have to be a slave to sin. Why? Because grace liberates me. I am no longer under the law. I'm under grace. And the power of grace is greater than the power of sin. Number three, we said what we offer ourselves to becomes what owns us. And Paul said that. He said, hey, listen, part of this breaking bad in you is you've got to begin to offer yourselves to God. Quit offering yourselves to the old part of your life. Offer yourselves to God because that's where your hope is found. And and the idea that when we offer ourselves to something, it owns us. We talked about how everyone's going to serve something in life. Everybody in this room, you're going to serve something. You're going to serve yourself. You're going to serve somebody else. You're going to serve this or you're going to serve God. And so really, he says, I want you to do these things because in doing them and when you offer yourself to God, you're going to experience power and victory and freedom and favor, just like we talked about last week. So if Romans 6 was about how do we break the bad, Romans 7 is about how do I ever do good? How do I ever do good? Some of you go, wait a minute, we've broken the bad. It's easy to do good now, or is it? The struggle is real. See, here's what happens. We start to experience victory over the patterns of sin in our life, and we begin to feel spiritual. Hey, man, I got this. I got this down. I no longer feel the desire and the need to go and kick my neighbor's cat. I am free from sin. (laughs) And what we do is we begin to find this freedom through the power over sin and the pattern of sin, and we begin to feel spiritual about it, and suddenly we begin to depend on ourselves. And here's what happens. We set higher standards for ourselves. We go after them, and after a season of even attaining them, we start looking deep in our hearts, and we start realizing that our sin nature is deeper than what we thought. And then it all collapses. Kind of like this. Three or four years ago, I started running these weekend triathlons. And I know some of you go, I don't understand that sickness you have, Sean. I don't either, okay? I can't explain what it's like, but running, triathlon, I love that stuff. And I remember training for my first triathlon. I got in a 25-meter pool, and I spent like three months swimming laps in this pool. And I got in there, and I swam, and I swam, and I swam, and I go, okay, I'm at 100 meters. Now I'm swimming 200 meters, 500 meters. And man, I was getting confident, and I was getting cocky. I was like, Michael Phelps, you're a punk, okay? And I mean, I'm just swimming, swimming, swimming up to 1,000 meters, 1,500 meters. I'm, I'm, I'm literally like having a coffee break in the pool, okay? I mean, it's just awesome. And then the day of the triathlon comes. And the way they line you up to go swim in the triathlon is you go to this lake, And they stick you at the shoreline and they put you in groups by your age and by your gender. And so I'm with the 40-year-old men's group and the 40-year-old women had gone before me. And then behind me was the 50-year-old women and then the 50-year-old men. And so all of a sudden the starting thing goes out. I'm like, man, I got this, man. I've trained hard. I'm good at this. And I get out there and I swim and I swim and I swim. And I get about 100 to 150 meters from the shore. And I turn around and look at the shore. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm going to drown. First of all, there's no place to put my foot on the bottom of this lake. Okay. Number two, the further I swim from shore, the more I realize my inability to get back and save my own life. 
So I get about three, 400 meters in and I'm just swimming, excuse me, I'm flailing and I'm going through the water and I'm kicking. And all of a sudden, one of the greatest things happened. I heard another gun go off and all of a sudden the 50 year old women were chasing me. And I'm at the back of the pack of the 40-year-old men. And listen, nothing will motivate you to do better than a bunch of 50-year-old women chasing you in the water. I'm like, I'm going to do this. I'm doing no way. All of a sudden, one of those women literally swam on top of me, nearly took me under the water. And I realized this isn't working out the way I thought it would. My ability to do it so well in a pool that is three foot deep is nothing like what it's like to swim in a lake. That's what some of us do in our spiritual lives. We give our lives to Christ. We begin to attempt to live the Christian life. And the longer we try and the harder we try, we're in life and we're just flailing our arms back and forth. So what do we do? We start to strategize ways to try to live up to God's standards. And when we do that, we create this thing we call in life called legalism. So that's what Paul in Romans 7 is wanting to talk to us about today. What is legalism? If you have a pen, write this down. It's the belief that I can please God by obeying laws and rules. If I just try hard enough, it's the belief that my spiritual life is somehow dictated by my do's and my don'ts. I don't do this, and I do do this. And if I do more do's and more don't, you know, we try to like scale it out. It puts all the focus on the fruit of sins that we try to maintain versus the root of sin of which Jesus died to bring his power of and over. It judges me and it judges others according to their outward actions instead of their inward condition. It causes me to miss the purpose of the law and why God gave it to us. And the relationship between law and grace. Now, here's the problem. This is reinforced in our society. We have social norms. We have culture. We have taboos. We have things that say, hey, listen, here in the South, we don't act that way. Why? Because my papa said you don't act that way. Right? And we try to live up to not only God's laws, but then we try to live up to man's laws. And if you think tripping on God's laws are, are difficult, wait till you try to trip on all of man's laws. I mean, it's a, it's a challenge. And suddenly... It gets reinforced in us to the point that we go one of two directions, and both directions are extreme. The first direction is we become a pretender. We begin to pretend that we got this. Hey, man, I've got control of my sin nature. Hey, man, I got, I got this thing. I figured myself out. Like, I know why I do what I do and when I do what I do and what I don't do. I mean, you think you got it. And then the other extreme is you become a deserter. You give up. The struggle is so massive and it's so real. You just say, hey, bro, because I'm under grace, I'm just going to keep asking for forgiveness. In this cycle of defeat I'm in, I can't do anything about it. You see, here's one of the challenges. When Christ died on the cross, he died for the penalty of our sin. As a believer in Christ today, if you're here and you're a Christ follower, that is a reality. The penalty of your sin, you don't have to pay for it anymore. We call that justification. I'm put back in right standing with God. But not only is there the penalty of sin that's been paid for, but 
We learned last week the power of sin has been dealt with because we call that sanctification. Like I'm becoming more like Christ the more I lean on him and take my eyes off of myself and realize that he did it all anyway and I couldn't do any of it. We call that sanctification. But the part that we're stuck between is part two and part three. And it's called glorification. And here's what that means. The first is about the penalty of sin. The second is about the power over sin. But we're left here on this earth around the presence of sin. And so some of you are like, man, where, how do you deal with this struggle? Like, I'm trying, to, man, I'm trying to make myself look better. I mean, we meet people, they always make themselves look better than what they are. I mean, you know, today's trunk or treat. Some of you wore a really good costume to church today. You came in acting like a Christian. <laughs> man, I, act, I smell like a Christian. I put on eternity cologne. I mean, come on. You know, this is good. And we get used to wearing our costumes. We become a pretender or we become a deserter. So Paul wants us to see three key things if we're going to have strength in the struggle that we're in. And then God's going to lead us to a place that I pray that we'll never forget he leads us to. So if you have a pen, write this down. Number one, why do we struggle? How is the struggle real? We struggle with our relationship to the law. Paul basically says in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 7, he says, listen, don't you know that if a guy is married and he dies, he's not married to that woman anymore, okay? Look at your neighbor real quick and say, duh, okay? Death has its benefits, duh, all right? The truth is, that was like a duh moment in Scripture. Paul says that to us and he says, hey, listen, when you've died, you've been freed from the law of marriage. And he's trying to give them an illustration, but he's trying to help us understand our relationship to God's moral law. And he, look what he says in verse 4. He says, So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Verse 5. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now... By dying to what was once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul was telling us two things. Number one, he says, you've died to the law. You see, the problem with legalism is we want to match ourselves up to it. Paul said, you can't do that anymore. That would be like a person saying, I'm still married, but their spouse is dead. You can't do that. He says, not only have you died to it, you've been delivered from it. And that word delivered is a powerful word because it means we've been delivered from something to someone. So the law is not what we're in relationship to anymore. Here's what it means. It means the motivation of my life no longer comes from keeping the law, from trying to get it all right. The motivation of my life comes from the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. That's a totally different set of motivations. So, what good is the law if we don't need it anymore, right? If you go back to that point, you have to realize that the law only has the power to condemn us and not redeem us. So all of the trying to get it right never gets us to the point because what God's wanting to do is to say, I want to show you my law so you'll realize you can't do it and bring you to a place where you realize you can 
We have to understand our relationship to the law. Number two, we have to understand we struggle to understand our own sin nature. I mean, when I became a Christian, I thought I understood what I turned away from, all the sin habits. What I didn't realize is what was lurking inside of me. We don't understand our own sin nature. Paul tells us in verse 7 that the law reveals sin to us. We wouldn't know what sin was if we didn't know what the standard was. Because we don't see how bad we miss the mark. You see, what we try to do in legalism is we try to think that sin comes from the outside. And it doesn't. Sin comes from the inside. I was born this way. I was born with a bent to want to eat chocolate cake at midnight on Saturday night. Amen? Nobody forced me. Nobody woke up and said, Sean, this would be a really powerful idea for you. Okay? No one planted that in my head. It was natural. So the sin that we have in our life is revealed through the law. But secondly, the law aroused sin in us. I want to talk about this for a second. See, I have two magnets right here. You put them together one way, they immediately attract each other. But if you turn them over and you try to mesh them together, there's no way you're going to make them fit. The power between the two will always force them apart. This is the law. This is our sin nature. The more God's law presses against it, the more we press away from it. It arouses sin in us. I want to illustrate this in another way real quick. I I want you to see this picture on the screen real quick. I want to prove my theory here. Pull up that first picture if you would, guys. Yeah, how many of you guys have ever seen this at the pool? All right? Like, I love going and hanging out at the pool, and I love when children get the whistle of death. Stop running! Stop running! Okay, when I was young, this was there, and here's what this meant to me. Run really fast, dive into the pool, because it doesn't say diving, right? You dive into the pool, even though it's only two feet, and jump on your brother and start some WWF right there. That's what that evoked in me, okay? When I saw that sign, I went, well, obviously, I'm not a horse, so there's no play in me, all right? The second one, look at this one real quick, all right? This is proof. Wow. Okay, if you, if, you, <laughs> if you live in Atlanta, you may think this says speed limit 70, but it really says 82. Why? Because when you see that, your nature immediately says, hey, man, they're not going to pull me over for eight over. We immediately want to do what? We want to bend the law. Why? Because sin is aroused in us. Let me show you the next photo. This is great. All right. Have you ever met this lady? Hey, there's wet paint. I think I will touch it. Even though the sign says wet paint, don't touch. What do we do? We're enticed by it. I mean, we are literally enticed by it. Bible says this in, in uh, Romans 7, 8 and 9. It basically says that when we're aroused by our sin... That sin is like a jack-in-the-box. It's literally waiting and crouching, waiting to spring itself up to us. I mean, you remember that sound? (laughs) There's always one person in the room. He goes, pop. Thank you. That's right. 
We're waiting for it to pop. Why? Because our sin nature is crouching down and it's waiting for us. When we see the moral law of God, it arouses sin in our life. And what happens is when we give into it, it creates all this shadow around our life. And we feel defeated. Not only that, the law kills us. It says in verse 10 and 11 that it's the final nail in our coffin of our own self-reliance. We see it and we realize we can't measure up to it. And we're just like, I'm drowning. There's no hope for me. I think this is the most intriguing thing. In verse 12 and 13, he tells us the law shows us the sinfulness of our own sin. As if it wasn't bad enough, right? Like, hey, I know I got this problem, but now you're going to tell me the motive behind the problem. And what he's really trying to say is this, with our own sin nature, we're so sinful in it that we want to create crutches to try to act as if it's not as sinful. For instance, we make excuses for our sin. We say, you know, I just made a mistake. Or we just say, you know what, this is just a weakness that I have. Instead of saying, you know what, that thing in me is so exceedingly sinful. Why do I do that? Why am I that way? Until we realize how wicked sin really is, (laughs) we will never want to oppose it and live in victory from it. Thank you, sir. Y'all give our assistant a great round of applause. See, here's what we try to do with our sin nature. We try to go on a sin diet. Y'all ever been on a sin diet? Because I can't be sinless, I just want to sin less. And so we pick things in our life, and it's a subtle form of legalism, and we just basically say the goal here is not that I not sin, the goal is that I have better portion control. All right? So I need to know, is anyone ready for an ice cream sundae? Anyone would love an ice cream sundae? Like, how many of you prayed this morning, Lord, if I go to Southcrest, I pray that there is an ice cream sundae with Reese's Pieces on the top and whipped cream on the top. Hey, am I arousing you guys yet? All right, here. As I think about this, there are nuts. There is chocolate. There is caramel. All right, who would like this? Like, really, who would like this? All right, like somebody. Okay, okay. hey, this guy back here in the orange, come on up here. Come on up here. You in the orange, you have won this Sunday. Y'all give him a big round of applause. All right? Awesome, awesome. Now listen, here's the thing. There's only one stipulation about this Sunday. This is totally yours. Don't share it with anyone around you. Okay, they didn't earn it. You earned it. You raised your hand. Here's the only problem. You can only have two bites. (laughs) Two bites. So go back to your chair. Enjoy your two bites, sir. And you sit there and you hold that Sunday the rest of the time. And tell me how your sin nature's doing. You see, the law and sin arouses us. It makes us want to take it way past the limit. Why? Because it's our nature. So Paul said, listen, you're not going to overcome it this way. You're going to feel more shame. You're going to feel more defeat. Because we need to understand the relationship to the law. We died to it. We're delivered from it. Our relationship to our sin nature. The law was there to reveal we're sinners and to show us how sin arouses us. But then there's this other part we got to deal with, and it's our struggle with ourself. We struggle with self. Paul says this in verse 14. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin. 
I mean, that's a big realization for someone to say. I realize that there's God's law. I realize that there's sin nature that's kind of crouching at me like a jack-in-the-box. But then I also see myself, and I realize that I'm sold as a slave into it. I am aware that there's an inner man in me that struggles. And that my struggles will eventually be seen outside of me. You see, what that does in our life is it leads us to understand the law and legalism can't change you. And not only that, the law can't enable you to even do good. Why? Because sin dwells in me, my old nature. I have this new nature. And I have to understand the difference between the two. And we're going to talk about that more next week. But I want to take you to this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 18. Tell me this isn't a moment where you can say, man, I so feel like Paul. He says, for I know the good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my sinful nature. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. This is Paul. This is a guy who in Philippians 3 said when it came to legalism, he was faultless. When it came to zeal, he said, I can persecute every single person in the church. I can kill every one of them Christians. He said, for I have the desire to do good, but I can't carry it out. For I, I do, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now I do what I do not want to do. It is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. See what he's doing? He's seeing inside of himself. And he's realizing that the battle's within. It's within his nature. It's within the sin nature. And it's within the nature to the law and the relationship to the law. And he said, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. You know what happens when we begin to mask ourselves that way? It will manifest itself somewhere else in our life. Kind of like this. Some of you may know this. There have been thousands of researchers that have studied this. But they say that the actual iceberg that sunk the Titanic... It wasn't the part of the iceberg that was outside of the water. It was the massive iceberg that was within. That literally, it was one of the largest icebergs that they had ever seen when they studied the size of it. It was probably 10 times larger than what was exposed outside. That's what our sin nature does. We try to hide it. We try to double down on it. We try to mask it. And it will manifest itself somewhere else. And we come to the point where we realize ultimately, none of this sets us free. So in verse 24, Paul says this. He says, what a wretched man am I who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. That word wretched means exhausted. I meet a lot of exhausted Christians. I meet a lot of people who are like, man, Sean, if the struggle is real, then why is the struggle here? Why is it here? Why, why, why didn't God just save us and take us home? He's in the process of sanctifying us, helping us overcome the power of sin. Because the penalty of sin's already been broken, and the power of sin is a real. But we're not home yet. I mean, it's kind of like when you run a marathon. You can run 26 miles, but until you run the last 385 yards, you haven't been there. God's getting us to the place where he wants us because he uses 24 verses to bring us to this thought that Paul says. Look at verse 25. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Underline that in your Bible. He delivers me. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. The reason the struggle is real is God's not done. You say, well, I don't want to struggle. Well, sorry, we were born into a sin-fallen world. But here's the help that God gives us in the struggle. Here is the help that God gives us in the struggle. Paul uses 25 verses to get us to the end of ourselves, to get us identified with his law, and to get us into the knowledge of our own sin nature, to bring us back to one core thought. It's not I, but Christ. I want to tell you a story. It's a true story. January of 2010, national championship game, the Alabama Crimson Tide were playing the Texas Longhorns. Some of you watch this game. I watch this game. Two very incredible programs that year, two different conferences. It was going to be an incredible national championship game. On the Texas side of the ball, their quarterback was a guy named Colt McCoy. Colt was one of the most prolific college quarterbacks that had ever played the game. I mean, he was amazing. His dad was a high school football coach. His brother ended up playing at Texas. He was awesome. And in that game, literally within like the first quarter, probably within the first seven minutes of the first quarter, something tragic happened. One of the, uh, the defensive people from Alabama came across and they hit Colt in the shoulder and he, he had a pinched nerve in his shoulder. And so everyone's freaking out because he leaves the, the game and everyone's like, oh my gosh, he's hurt. What happened? I'll never forget. I was watching the game. I'm like, wow, this is crazy. Like they just knocked their quarterback totally out of the game. They took him back to the locker room because they immediately knew something was wrong. He could feel nothing in his arm. And it was his throwing arm. So they got him back to the locker room. They began to examine him, realized that nothing was dislocated, but realized that he had pinched a nerve and he'd created what was called dead arm. And so although it takes time for the feeling to come back, every time that he would try to throw a ball, the ball would just do this. It would just sail on him. The only problem is, Colt being the competitor he is, he looked at the team doctors and he said, listen guys, I can do this. I got this. I've thrown a thousand passes. I've thrown 3,000, 5,000 passes in my life. This is the national championship game. I'm not giving up. I'm going to go back in the game. I'm going to win. We're going to make this happen. And they're looking at him going, listen, man, we're telling you, there is no more throwing for you tonight. He said, I'll show you. He said, give me that ball. He grabbed one of the balls. He grabbed his dad who had been brought back to the locker room, walked him out in the hallway in front of the dressing room and started throwing seven yard passes to his dad. And he kept saying to his dad, he said, dad, I got this. Dad, I got this, dad. Dad, I got this. He threw about 10 passes and all 10 passes never had the accuracy that he needed to throw in a national championship game. And his dad walked up to him and put his arms around him and he said, Colt, you don't have to have this. You're already a champion. You're going to play pro football. He still plays in the NFL to this day. You see, that's what we try to do with our sin nature. We grab the ball and we just keep throwing it going, I got this, God. I got this. I'm just going to try harder, God. God, I'm just going to, I'm just, I'm going to figure this out. God, I'm going to double down on it. I'm going to throw more reps. I'm going to get stronger. I'm going to get bigger and I'm going to get faster. And here's the part we don't realize. Not I, 
but Christ. Paul said, at the end of 24 verses, in all my struggle with sin, I came back to one truth. Who's going to rescue me? Who's going to deliver me from this body of sin? Praise be to Jesus Christ. Not I, but Christ. I want you to say it with me. Not I, but Christ. It is not my ability to try to manage. The struggle is real. The struggle is going to be here till the day that we go home to be with Jesus. But the reliance doesn't have to be on the struggle. The reliance comes in the one who can deliver us. And that word delivered means brought out of something and given to someone. Jesus. Not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. Father in heaven, I thank you for this day. I thank you that in Jesus' name, in the name of Jesus, there is power. The penalty has been paid. There is power over sin. And even in the struggle, Lord, you bring us back to one core reality. And that is apart from you, we can do nothing. And Jesus, I thank you that you are greater than the power of sin. I thank you that Jesus, you are bigger than my struggle with sin. And when I begin to say, not I, but Christ, not I, but Christ, my eyes take my off myself and my eyes are put completely on you. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed today, I want to ask you a question. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, you're in a very peculiar place and here's why. The penalty of your sin is still there. You say, well, I'm trying to do this, man. I've got no, listen, you can't pay the penalty. We learned last week in verse 23 of Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You can't pay the wages. They're too steep. So you're here and the penalty's not been paid and the power is overwhelming to you because your life is completely lost in sin. And you're sitting here going, man, why would Jesus want to rescue me? because he loves you. And if you're here today and you've never given him your life, I want to give you this opportunity right here, right now to invite Christ to come into your life and to be your Lord and to be your Savior. Would you pray with me? Just say, dear Jesus, thank you for bringing me today to this place. Thank you that you loved me and that you paid the penalty for my sin. Jesus, I give you my life and I ask you to come into my heart to forgive my sin and to give me the power over sin. Jesus, I give you my life and I allow you to be Savior and Lord today.